This is the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. I'm here to crush those limiting beliefs that Jonathan just said, that just because you live in a very expensive place, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, wherever, you can find cash flow. If you're committed and you have the right process, you can find a good deal. You're listening to the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast, where we discuss tangible tips, tricks, and best practices for becoming financially free. The show is designed for people who want to either start real estate investing or for those who want to scale their real estate business. What's up, guys? This is Jonathan Farber, host of the Millennial Millionaire Through Real Estate Podcast. This show is all about achieving financial freedom as fast as possible so you can do whatever makes you happy in life. For me, that vehicle was real estate, and it's how I achieved financial freedom at 27. If you want to know how I got started, my journey is presented in a YouTube video posted in the show notes, and I post daily in our private Facebook group about my favorite topics and day-to-day strategies. I appreciate you guys being here, and let's get started. Oh, by the way, reach out if you ever need help. I try to keep my calendar open and talk to anyone that needs it or has any quick questions. See you guys. Talk to you later. This episode is sponsored by Infinite Road Destinations, the smartest short-term rental property management group I know, and the group that manages my properties. This is a company that's very close to my heart, run by two of the smartest, most attentive people I know, Claire Rosenberg and Alex Brashears. Claire and I first met when we worked together at NetApp, where she was a top performer and rose crazy fast in the company. And Alex is just one of the most active, genuine people I know in the real estate space. The two of them together bring a blended background of project management, software design, and extensive experience with automation tools and virtual assistants. Through these experiences, they optimize any property to deliver a hands-off experience to owners while delivering the highest occupancy and highest daily rates possible. You guys know I would not recommend anything to anyone in this group that I do not fully endorse or think that is the absolute best product. And this company is that. And like I said before, this is the exact company and people that manage my Airbnbs. If you don't believe me, here are a few of the other tools and services that come along with the team. Listing optimization, guest support and approval, communication and reservations, key exchange and management, dynamic pricing, welcome kit creation, listing advertising and marketing, vendor management, including cleaners, maintenance, handymen, runners, and monthly property reports. To learn more, check out shorttermmadeeasy.com or email info at shorttermmadeeasy.com. And on the forum, just mention that you heard it here or mention my name. So give it a try. You have nothing to lose and they offer a satisfaction guarantee. And I assure you guys, you will not be disappointed. What's going on, guys? Today, we have a special episode with two people that are just very close to me. My brother, Brad Farber, and close personal high school friend and Brad's partner now and good friend growing up, Howard Heller. Um, Two people that from Plainview, Long Island, and now live in New York City, um, built, not built, they bought their first deal this year. They bought a four unit during coronavirus in the middle of Ohio, Dayton, to be more specific. And it's just been an awesome progression to see these two develop and learn and finally start to take action after a couple of years of not really doing that and just using a lot of the, I think, excuses that are just kind of thrust upon people. And they kind of just had the willpower and belief to break out of that, which is really cool. And we dig into all things about the deal, how to get started in out-of-state investing, how to take action and just keep coming, overcoming these obstacles and barriers and the societal dogma that everyone kind of says or thinks or tells you based on their own bad experience. Where, uh, as you guys know, listening to the show that I just don't believe in that mentality. I only want to get advice from people that have done it and I admire. And in a lot of cases, that's not people in Long Island who have never done a real estate deal before, especially out-of-state. So there is a way, and that is kind of my main learning of the show, just the the willpower and kind of the confidence and the drive that Brad and Howard had to not only get started, but also do this deal because this deal that they did, this four unit had a lot of hair on it. It was a very sticky deal. There were a lot of ups and downs and it seemed like it was going to fall through a couple of times, but they persisted and they got it done. And now they're officially real estate investors and landlords and they've been making cash flow now more than they actually even expected. So they get into that in the show of how the deal developed and what the numbers actually looked like and how you guys can too. So that's the main learning. Today's tangible tip is to start just building one habit next week. If it's analyzing deals, if it's reading about real estate, if it's going for a walk and just put it on your calendar for 30 days and maybe even get a piece of paper with a drawn out calendar on it and just make an X through 
each day that you do this thing and it's so cliche, but it's that old Jerry Seinfeld thing that as you start seeing momentum and seeing progress, you will want to keep the chain going. It's this other habit tracker app even called do not break the chain or whatever the acronym for that is. But basically just get started on one habit and then add to that habit after you've mastered that thing and just start stacking these habits. You'll be amazed at how easily things start to come to you when you have a couple good habits in place and you don't have to think about them being difficult or how am I going to do this? What am I going to wear? It just becomes a habit. You just do it. You don't need to think about what you're going to wear to the gym because your shoes are already prepared. So just start with one and build some momentum around it and you'll be amazed at what happens. So start that next, next week, guys. With that type of setup, you will have a much better chance of seeing it through and uh, maybe doing the next big thing that you want to do in your life. So that's today's tangible tip. Without any further ado, great episode today with Brad Farber, my brother, and Howard Heller. See ya. Boys, yeah. I'm excited to have you guys here. This is going to be a fun show, a little bit of a different one. Um, for any watching, you'll see one of you is my brother. The other is a close family friend and longtime Plainview native, but excited to have you guys on the show. Brad Farber and Howard Heller, especially hot off your first deal. How are you guys doing this morning? We're doing great. Today is actually rent collection day. We're on anniversary number two. So hopefully we got those cozy notifications <laughs> and uh, we got the alerts and we get some uh, some people making making rent payments. Awesome. Yeah, Love it. I mean, excited to be here. Um, if you asked me four months ago if I was going to be on the John Farber podcast, I probably would have said no. So see what taking action does. Uh, all of a sudden we're here and we've done our first deal. Love it. All right. Well, jumping right into it, guys. Some of you guys may have heard me reference you coming on the show or names before, but for those that don't know, could each of you give a quick blurb background on who you are, how you got into real estate, and then what you do day to day? Sure. So I'll kick it off. So my name is Brad Farber, 30 years old, live in New York City, married with a beautiful seven-month-old daughter, Kaya. I work at a great W-2 job. And my interest for real estate really peaked about five years ago when I was with my prior company and I was working as an auditor and I was working on a large multifamily syndication project. And the partner had asked me to take a look at the distributions that the general partners and investors were receiving. And I immediately was in awe of what I was seeing, the type of money that was being distributed via the waterfall, at a certain point, some of these deals had really become very lucrative. And I had that aha moment where I said, I don't want to be the person who's auditing the distributions. I want to be the person getting the distributions. And from that day onward, I said, I'm starting this real estate journey. I don't know how, but I'm going to figure it out. And that was five years ago. And I ended up closing on my first deal in 2021. So there was five years of paralysis That's by good. analysis, living in Excel, you know, a lot of education, not really being able to take action and pull the trigger, but something changed for me about a year ago. Um, I don't know if it was because I had a kid and I was like, my why is now greater, mm. but I think that definitely influenced it. And earlier in the year, we closed on our first awesome four unit in Dayton, Ohio, and we're super excited about it. Love we're going to do a deal deep dive because there was a lot of stuff that went on in this deal that people can learn from. Awesome. Love it. All right, Brad, thanks for that. Howard, you want to give us a quick blurb as well? Sure. Uh, so I'm Howard Heller, um, ex-college athlete like yourself. I uh, spent my first five and a half years in uh, public accounting. In uh, the last three years, I've been a controller at a um, experiential hospitality company that uh, we spend our time in the uh, live event and sports space. Um, got into real estate, um, wanted to diversify my portfolio and um, wanted to get more on the entrepreneurial strategy side of things. Um, and I thought that my skill set would lend itself to, to real estate. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I saw a lot of my friends getting into it. So I figured I'd pick up a few books and, um, and, and do some research on it. And then I, my good friend, Brad Farber kind of approached me about taking some action. And, um, you know, we did, and we're here to tell that story. Oh, that awesome. Well, I think the audience is really going to connect, especially with your guys' message and the action that you took, because one, you guys were studying it for 
a good amount of time. Like Brad, you were taking some time to learn the ropes. Howard, it seems like it was a little bit more of a compressed timeline, but you linked up with someone that did. And then you finally did take action. But then the other part of it that I think a lot of people can relate to listening to this is living in an expensive market where it feels a little hopeless to get into the game. You know, you see people on bigger pockets investing in these low price point areas or house hacking on a duplex that costs 120,000. That's just not realistic growing up in Long Island or living in New York City and wanting to kind of maintain a lifestyle, but invest in areas that it makes sense. So I guess just what I would love to do next is dig into the deal. And, and again, this is also a little bit of a different show. As you guys know, usually we have people that have done a lot of deals, but I think having beginners on, especially close family and friends, there's also an added element of, you know, just familiarity with the people that are still trying to get started and going from zero to one. And then after that, you learn so much and there's so much momentum that kind of comes along with it and learnings. And if the deal has some hair on it, you learn some things that you're not going to do the next time, which we're definitely going to get into. So whoever wants to go first and kind of kick it off, if, if we could just start talking about kind of the deal and the nuts and bolts of it, of how it came together, things like finding an area, finding a team in that area, finding the financing, actually executing the deal. And then, you know, we'll kind of take it in progression, but let's just start high level and then we'll kind of layer down as things come up. All right. So let's just say about a year ago, I decided I was stalling, you know, I'm, I'm trying to chop down that tree, but I'm still at the sharpening of the ax phase. And uh, you know, I finally said, I'm going to take some action. And I put together a plan. And that plan was getting on bigger pockets, building a property profile, and reaching out to brokers in cities that I thought would meet my investment criteria. If you go to bigger pockets, okay, and you're a newbie and you want to get started, you're somebody from the coasts, and they're, it's going to they're going to push you to Columbus, Ohio, and Indianapolis. And I got pushed there. But I was like, no. These, these numbers don't work for me. I connected with some good people, um, but it really, it just, the numbers didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And I am, I do want to enforce that I'm here to crush those limiting beliefs that Jonathan just said, that just because you live in a very expensive place, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, wherever, you can find cash flow If you're committed and you have the right process, you can find a good deal. And I was looking at the wrong places and I had a conversation with a fellow from Indianapolis who we all know very, we love and know well, Zach Horwith. Yep. And Zach said, Brad, you're looking at all the wrong places. He goes, where you're looking for, the landscape has never been more competitive and there is money flowing in from the coast that want to come and hit these cities. Mm. So I was like, wow, okay. So then I kind of went back to the drawing board and I said, where am I going to get the yield that I'm looking for? and what cities you know, would potentially fit that mold. And it came down to looking at secondary cities, tertiary cities, sub-markets. You know? And this is where you go to Neil Bawa and you think about location magic. And you know what? Maybe Dayton didn't check seven of the boxes, his criteria, but it checks four. Mm -hmm. And it's good enough for me. And you know, I did, we did a lot of networking and we developed and fostered some deep relationships with brokers. And it's a, it's a challenge though, because if you think about it, there's somebody like Brad Farber that lives in territory in Dayton. And how do I beat that person out? Okay. And it, it's, it's, it's fostering relationships with people that if, if something comes up, they're going to call you versus maybe that other person that doesn't have the exposure to it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, we could talk about this, the whole podcast, but you know, it, yeah. it did lead to an off market deal coming our way. So good. All right. There's just a couple of things I feel like I need to pick on just for people that are kind of trying to figure out how to do the same thing. So first off, I just want to acknowledge that it is smart to realize there are thousands, if not millions of other people, just like me, you, Howard, that are looking for their deal. And like out of ego, I used to think, okay, somehow I can create this unfair advantage being out of state, but competing with the people that live in that market and do this every day. So not to say it's not possible, but it really just comes down to building a team and then having a system and then also just kind of evaluating risk. But you said something that I would say in our group and even just our conversations that you've always been known for. You're really good at building and fostering genuine relationships. 
you know, a lot of people that I even, and we're going to talk about this too. I have, this as kind of a jump off note later when, when I kind of became a nomad and was bouncing around the Midwest and you were kind of like my control center and you were building a lot of these relationships in the front end, but you've always been really good at that. And it's something that even when I talk to Zach or Rob or, you know, just other people that are friends of the group in the podcast, they kind of always say like, yeah, your brother just stood out in these conversations. I get pinged all the time. People are just kind of sucking me for my information. They're never doing anything. I don't feel appreciated. Um, can you maybe just talk to some ways that you felt you could build better relationships at a state and any thoughts you had or kind of self-talk of how were you going to stand out in these relationships so that these people just didn't put you on the bottom of the pile like everyone else? Yeah, you know, listen, it's it's sticking on people. It's dripping on people. You're not going to love this, but I wasn't bringing value to these people, okay? We were hitting it off. I mean, ideally, they probably saw me as a deal at the end of the day, but it's just kind of man to man. You know what? You know what? Send them an Amazon gift card for 25 bucks. Send them a Starbucks gift card. Have them remember you. Um, and they were the value that these people brought. And I'll be honest, I didn't bring much value back in return. But at the end of the day, it's people helping people. And people mm. like to, to be able to see other people succeed. And that is kind of what my game plan and approach was. And it was lucky. I, you know, I reached out to a lot of people. Some turned out to be spades and other people, you know, we never talked again, but you, you don't know until you try. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, people skills, can, you know, oh, oh, Howard, go ahead, jump in. It's, it, but yeah, you know, I was just going to yeah. comment just as, as an outsider looking into Brad, being a friend of Brad, I mean, Brad is, you know, I obviously wasn't there when he was developing these actual relationships and a lot of the relationships he's funneled to me, but, you know, in being friends with Brad, he's, he, he does bring value. I think he, I'll correct him and say he does bring value to every relationship because he's the person that takes the action to, to set up functions or the medium by which people communicate and converse. And a lot of people don't take those first steps or actions. And I think that's one of Brad's biggest strengths. The guy mm -hmm. had 13 groomsmen in his wedding party for a reason. I mean, he not only develops lots of relationships, but he develops valuable ones. And I think that's that's really a core strength of his. So I I'd actually disagree with Brad. I think he brings a lot of value. Totally. It's soft skills. It's how to win friends and influence people. Right. It's never eat alone. It's it's making people feel good in a conversation instead of that they need to take a shower when they get off the phone. You know, so harder to teach, but these things matter. And it's the way that you build relationships. Um, so actually just kind of changing gears here a little bit, but still kind of going down the path, you know, cause some of you guys out there might be wondering what, what is my path to a first deal or how do I even know what I want? You know, there's appreciation markets, there's like growth markets, there's cash flow markets. So for you guys, and then and we'll get to kind of the deal and then starting like the search and analyzing, but what were you guys looking for? Were you looking for appreciation? Were you looking for cash flow? Kind of like, what was your driver to do this deal? comes down to Joe Fairless. Three things. I'm looking for cash flow. I'm going to have reserves in the bank and I'm going to secure long-term debt and I'm not going to fall on my face. Okay. Mm. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to do well in real estate. Uh, you need to be smartly stupid, smart enough that if you see something that seems kind of like it makes sense, you, you move forward and stupid enough that maybe if you don't know a number or two, you still move forward because mm. you're going to figure it out. Right. So I true. think we, uh, we developed our criteria um, for, you know, a cap rate target, um, cash on cash return. And we looked for markets where that could fit that profile. And then we attacked the, you know, attacked the focused on those markets. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I think it's just great reminders, you know, to have kind of your priorities and maybe this is something you could just comment on when you were building those broker relationships a question that a lot of them will have for any out-of-state investor is, what is your criteria? And I remember I struggled with this a lot too, because it's like, well, I just want a good deal. But if you say that answer, they will not be giving you deals that meet your needs. So can you maybe talk to what you know that conversation is like, or kind of helping someone that's looking to develop a criteria for finding a deal? Sure. So I think it's the two things that Howie definitely looked on. Because at the end of the day, you're buying a deal to make money. You need to be disciplined and, you know, maybe you lower your, your expectations as far as what yield you're looking for. If you just say, okay, I want to get in, but I think there's definitely a cap rate element to it. You want to know you're getting a good deal. You want to get cap low. Okay. You want to make sure that at the end of the day, the, the deal makes sense. But for us, it was also more the fact that we are investing in a market that we're 900 miles away from. 
we bought the property. We still haven't been there. Okay. But that's because we have a team in place. Mm-hmm. seems crazy, but that's the zoom world that we live in. And the other two really things that, that I tried to drive home was that we're looking for a light value add, maybe something closer to a turnkey because who am I going to fool that from New York, I'm going to be managing any type of, you know, large value add product for our first deal. Absolutely not. And the other thing was we wanted a B market, a good mm-hmm. solid B market where we weren't going to have to go banging down doors for tenants. We wanted a high tenant class and also a B market. I heard Jay Scott talk about this, but you're protected in economic upside and downside. So mm-hmm. if you're in a B market and there's a recession, people from the A market are moving to the B market. There's economic prosperity. People from the C market are moving into your B market. So that gives you a long runway and that security in the B market. That's kind of what we're looking for. Mm-hmm. And we packaged that together, got an off-market deal that came our way. And then we started plugging away. Yep. Okay. And you gotta so act quick. I, I wanna I wanna talk about that of the process of when okay, so identifying markets, your path was bigger pockets, connecting with people getting a lot of information to just think about where is it going to be aligned my goals of cash flow and doing a first deal that's not really expensive. Uh, then from there, meeting the, the key players in those areas, also through bigger pockets, Facebook groups, building relationships, getting on the phone, sending gift cards, things like that. Uh, and now they're sending you deals. So now you're getting the thing that you asked for. So, but, but for a lot of people, that's a tricky part of the process too of, you know, I got what I asked for, but I don't know how to analyze these deals. I don't know how to make offers. And I'm just going to be the, the low ball guy for no reason, you know, and maybe burn a relationship. So what was that like for you guys of when a deal would come in, how to analyze it, but then also, you know, like, how did you get comfortable enough making offers? Go ahead, Howard. Sure. So um, we had deals being personally sent to us uh, by a broker who Brad established a relationship with. And um, this, you know, these deals would come come through and, you know, Brad would forward them to me and we had a system in place where we had a, a, a template analyzer, which was kind of like using the best of the best that we saw that was out there and kind of customizing it to the way we wanted to visualize visualize the deal best. And, uh, you know, we'd go, it, it goes comes down to analyzing deals. Like if you, the more you analyze, the more you're going to find a deal. So we set up a process and, you know, at first when we were going through it, oh, Brad sent another deal to me. I got to go do this. And it, it's kind of like a chore, but it, it's, it's a part of the, it's a necessary evil to, to getting through this process. So we'd analyze a deal and then um, it gets to a point where you find one and you have to start, you know, taking action. So, you know, the next thing is like, does this meet our criteria? If it meets our criteria, okay, then let's, let's put in a competitive offer. Um, so that's kind of the deal, the way we work the deal flow. Um, and then ultimately, you know, as you keep taking actions, you, you, you go farther down the road and, you know, the next thing you know, you have an accepted offer mm-hmm. and uh, you're, you're onto the inspection phase. Um, I know Brad can add some to this too. Before, before we get there though, because that's where, you know, due diligence, but before we get to that, what were you looking for to know if it was a good deal? You know, you hear numbers being thrown around a lot of times. Some people say if I beat 8% in the market, it's good. Some people want more like 10, 12, you know, like, what was your your benchmark or criteria to know that as you were running numbers, this is our offer price that we're comfortable with? So how'd you know and what was it for you guys? Sure. Um, so it was a, um, you know, we, we for our first deal, we always said we, we weren't looking to hit a grand slam. We were looking to hit a single or that double. So we, mm-hmm. we really reeled back our expectation. You know, uh, for us, we were definitely targeting that 10% cash on cash return. Um, our cap rate was around 8% that we were looking for. Um, so we had the, those kind of, we were sticking to our, 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 our guns with that. And, um, you know, and then obviously there's a certain amount, you know, of capital that you have to play with that you want to actually put down on this property. Um, so, you know, it had to fit a, a bunch of these different criteria. And mm-hmm. uh, like also for us, it was that B plus neighborhood and um, less maintenance and, you um, in a market that we thought, you know, um, was, was, uh, it was geographically located right in a, in a B, B plus market. Got it. Okay. The other one thing I'll add was I did want to know when I was going to recoup my capital. You know, that's, that was definitely a big thing to me. I'm not putting money into a deal that I'm not going to get my initial investment back for 12 years. So we were looking at a target between five and seven years. I said, by the time 
uh, six years comes around, Kyle will be in camp. We're going to need funds for that. Okay. So, you know, listen, it's, it comes down yeah. to, it's got to make sense. And hey, listen, it's, listen, you get crypto, stock markets on fire. I mean, yeah, real estate, it's an allocation, but it, it needs to make sense. So I think between totally. those cap rate metrics and our payback, you know, that was, that was definitely the criteria that we were looking for. Okay, cool. So just going down the path here, you had deals sent to you, you analyzed them, and then you made offers quickly and you had an agent and we're going to get into a little bit more of the team here, but um, ha- maybe describe it. However, kind of, it comes to you guys of what, what happened next in a deal, just being close to it and uh, maybe playing a small part in helping myself and knowing a little bit of the details. There was a lot that was going on and a lot of side turns that took place. It did happen, but how do, how do you recall it? Maybe just take us through kind of, you know, the ups and downs of it uh, as it happened. It was for sale by owner. Problem number one. Okay. <laughs> Normally, there's a reason why someone is, is going to decide to sell the property, you know, themselves because they don't, they're cheap. They probably don't want to pay a broker and they think they're smarter than everybody. And this fellow kind of met all those boxes. <laughs> He made it tough. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we put in our first offer. Uh, we, there were a few things in this deal that I, we definitely want to hit on. One, we're going to talk about the appraisal. Two, we're going to, so appraisal coming in short. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about due diligence and mistakes that we made in the underwriting process. And also how we overcame the fact that in the, in the 23rd hour of this deal, the seller tried to walk. So those are, those are basically the three things that we, we definitely need to hit on. And we learned so much and it's not in the Beardy Brandon book, you know, some of this stuff it's, 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 it's actually taking action and kind of seeing the process play out. But yeah, I mean, it started off with us kind of with the negotiation process. Um, Howard was really the anchor on some of the negotiating. So I'm going to let him kind of talk about the ping pong we played, but yeah, we were going back and forth, you know, it was an off market deal. The guy kind of just threw a number out there. We thought we had some numbers that, that made sense uh, with our underwriting. So we were meeting our financial goals and objectives and Mm -hmm. we got under contract at a, you know, at a price that we were comfortable with. Um, Mm -hmm. But it, it wasn't easy. It was not an easy process because, we were told, hey, it's a seller's market. You know, you don't have a lot of leverage here. And we were feeling that way. You know, it, it gets scary. It's like, damn, I'm going to lose this deal. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we, we analyzed it for a week. Mm-hmm. Totally. <laughs> That's the type of stuff. Um, well, yeah, one Howard, one quick you- thing I just want to jump in and say, though. I mean, there's there's two sides of it. One, there is nothing to lose by making offers. Um, there is a high emotional toll that I don't think a lot of people talk about. And it's impossible to disconnect from, especially at a beginner when you as a beginner, when you want your first deal. But I do want to reaffirm for anyone out there, you really do have nothing physically to lose by making offers. You know, like you, you can be making an offer every day, getting into due diligence and then walking away and you get all your deposit back. And basically you can just move on to the next one. There's no harm, no foul. But to that point, there's definitely an emotional aspect to this. Um, especially if the numbers are close, if they're not even close, it doesn't make sense. And it's easier to walk away from, but I know in this deal, it was a lot closer. So maybe it would help if you could just give us like the numbers also, cause then we're going to, I know, get into the, the appraisal and the challenges there. Um, but like from getting under contract, that sounds like that's where a lot of the big challenges started of like getting this thing closed. So sorry to just jump in. I just wanted to call that out, but just keep going down the path. All right, Howard, what was our offer price? 345. Okay. Got it. So what happened next? Oh, so um, we made an offer um, at 345 um, and well, so the original listing was 350. We came in at a very competitive 345, and we, you know, we went to contract. Um, so we go under contract, and we have the inspection done. And the inspection comes back with like a, a fairly sizable list. Um, and you know, it's our first time through, so I feel like the rookie thing to do is like look harp on every little thing. I looped in my father-in-law, who's built houses before, so trying to tap into that network. Um, so we, I went through this thing with um, pretty, pretty 
you know, soup to nuts. Um, and, you know, we ended up there, you know, being one, one piece that we wanted to go back for, you know, we could have nitpicked, but we picked one thing and there's a service wire that was fraying and in, in reaching out and corroborating what the issue is with the electricians, pretty mm -hmm. much we determined that we deserve the credit. Um, and we had to negotiate on, so that was our next negotiating was, uh, you know, how much do we deserve in, in the form of credit? We got a quote from an electrician. Um, they said seven, you know, we, we didn't want to, we didn't want to, we, we went to him with five and then he, you know, we settled on ultimately, uh, I think it was 35 in the seller's credit. 3,500. So yeah, 3,500. Okay, yeah. yeah. But that we got there first. The first, he came back at 1,500. I'm not going to lie. Right. My emotions, I was a hothead. I'm like, this guy, <laughs> are you kidding me, man? And I was bugging out. I was like crushed. Like, I right. feel like, you know, yeah. it was a hit. And the broker, and he reminded me, and he was, he was definitely always super accessible, Max Wechter, and was awesome. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's business at the end of the day and you need to take some of the emotion out of it. And again, first deal, there's going to be a lot of emotion, but mm -hmm. I think for someone to kind of be successful, you have to be able to peel back some of the emotion and just say, okay, he's trying to do what's, what's his best interest. And we're trying to do what's in our best interest. And that's how you make a deal. Yep. So I realized we just jumped right into it. The deal was listed for 350. It's a fourplex um tenants in place pretty turnkey type of property um what was the projected cash flow if you were to get it under contract at that price and i, I just want to pause and call that out just so people have a little more context but just real quick what was the projected cash flow at 345 or 50 on this four unit dayton ohio we were looking at around like 1200 bucks a month Okay. Um, it was pretty solid. And yeah. right. what I'm going to tell people, and we're going to get into the next two layers of this, right. but I heard it from Mark Cuban on Shark Tank. And this just resonated with me. In any deal you're doing, you need to know your numbers. Know you. I can't emphasize this enough. If it's a two-man show and it's you and your partner, one of you guys could be the deal guy. The other guy needs to be the numbers guy. Because if you don't know your numbers and there's some confusion, you like the broker's responsibility is to bring you a deal that fits your smell test. And then it's your job to come in and challenge every single number that was given to you and kind of, you know, go through the process. Like, is this real or not? Is this, is this an expense that I'm actually going to um, incur? Mm -hmm. And Brandon Turner, I heard it early on the bigger pockets podcast and stuck with me that pro forma equals Latin for lies. Okay. <laughs> you got to challenge the assumptions and yeah, you got to corroborate you know, the things that, you know, yeah. it, it's yeah. important. So yeah, we, we felt good about the numbers at that point, but we're going to segue into the fact that those numbers that we thought we were getting were actually going to be significantly less because we did not understand how the tax process worked in Montgomery County, where we purchased the property. Interesting. Okay. So let's just keep going down the path of due diligence here. So you're under contract, typical next steps, appraisal inspection. That's how you found that you found the wiring thing after your inspection, but um, just, just keep going down. And, and I know it's tough to do in short periods of time, but you know, just, we're trying to cram a lot into a little time here, but um, just, just walk us through what happened. Sure. So we get the seller credit um, and uh, the next step was, okay, let's, um, so that was after going to contract. So after we get the seller credit, um, we, we need to get an appraisal um, from, from our bank. So we go to get the appraisal and this is when kind of the fireworks and the deal first kind of start happening. Uh, so it, it doesn't, it doesn't appraise out. So it comes back at 265, which is quite below our, 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 you know, our contracted price. Right. It's almost so hundred thousand below like, contract. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's a hundred thousand below. So you think you've underwritten a deal. You think you have your num you know, your numbers and you're like, okay, well, you know, what's going on here. So that's when we really, we, you know, obviously you, you, we had to figure out what was driving this. And so I think Brad, Brad and I quickly went to do an analysis of, of, of the comps in the area and we real we quickly realized that inventory was really low on on what we were buying. So fourplexes, there wasn't a ton of comps, and that really drove the appraisal down um, in this area. 
So what we had to do was um, come up with a competitive offer that met our met our numbers. Now, um, so what we so what we did was we went back after kind of running numbers and running what you know what um, how you know what the, what the comps were in the area, and we went back with a counter offer that was considerably below what we contracted to, and we you know we get into this game of ping pong with the seller. With the seller. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. So, so, so just, just to reiterate kind of what, what happened here is just because you have a property under contract at a certain price, that doesn't mean that the bank is going to give you a loan for that price. They give you a loan based on what the property appraises for. And the way appraisals work in one to four units is that they appraise based on sale comps. And there's no necessarily rhyme or reason or formula that you can guarantee, but there is a big issue that happens when a property doesn't appraise for the contract price. It either becomes ping pong where you're trying to underwrite it at a number, analyze it at, a, at an offer price that makes sense for you, or going back to the seller and saying, I need you to lower to this price if you want to do the deal. It kind of becomes a situation of who needs to do this deal more and whoever kind of moves first in a sense loses. So I just want to call that out for people because I'm all for making offers, but I do believe that it should be kind of done with a backend kind of understanding of the comps and what a CMA is going to look like for that area. But anyway, you got the deal done. So let's just keep going. So, okay. You're now in this negotiation with the seller. How, how did you kind of overcome that? What were some of the challenges going back and forth um, or any tips or advice that you kind of took away from it? So the biggest thing here was that when we came in at our 345, we thought the property taxes were going to be $5,500 a year. During this reappraisal process, I started doing a little bit of digging. And in our initial underwriting, we were told that the property tax would go up 25%. Okay. So we'd have a few years. So the 5,500 would turn into 7,500. Well, that was not correct information. And upon a little bit more due diligence, I realized that the taxes are actually going to double. So they're at 5,500 and they're going to go to 11,000 in two years, two or three years. And I was like, all right, well now, thank God the property didn't appraise because we would have been basically underwater in two years. We would have had a property that was barely cash flowing. And then Howard and I kind of went back to each other and said, okay, so thank, we're, we're thankful that the property didn't appraise. What is our top number they're willing to pay now based off the fact that the property taxes are going to double? And we were at like $305,000, okay? Mm. And I knew since the gap was so large, you know, from what the property, our initial offer to the appraisal to try to help the negotiations um, with our seller and our broker that it was spearheading, I put together an Excel sheet where I looked at five comps in the area and looked at what their taxes were. And I explained to the seller that the taxes are going to double on this property. And I mean, 340 was never a number that was going to make sense for anybody. The bank appraised for 265 and we're at 285. And that's because we're setting a record in Dayton. You know, mm-hmm. we're, you're getting a record. Um, and that was, that was really important because that kind of gave us a little bit of a leg to stand on. And then we use that crutch to kind of go back and forth and say, okay, like you're setting a record price per square foot in the area. The taxes are your, you know, right now the numbers look good, but the taxes are going to go up significantly. And any savvy investor, especially like if, if, if we're the people that walk because of the appraisal, a cash investor that has 300 K in the bank, they're going to realize the taxes are going up and they're not going to pay him his premium. So, you know, we tried to look at it as like, okay, maybe we finally have a little leverage on this guy. Yep. Um, and then Howard, you know, take the second part of it, how we got to 285 to how we closed the deal and what number we closed. And, and just one yeah, thing, so how I mean, is the communication happening? Is it through the broker? Are you going direct to the seller, you know, cause there's a little bit of yeah. telephone being played typically. So, so yeah. how did that kind of play into this? So it went through the broker, um, and our so, broker, our yep. broker, yep. right. So, um, you know, it went, you know, we experienced when we first started, you know, this guy, especially when we were, we were talking about the seller credit, you know, this guy's firm to his number. He comes up with a number. If he's going to negotiate, he's going in small increments, like a couple clicks up. We were going in many more clicks than him. So, you know, as we learned and being our first deal, we realized that if you have a number, take the emotion out of it and play, you know, it's okay to sometimes to have to play this game of ping pong and maybe experience a little bit of friction 
in negotiating. So ultimately, we did a better, I would say, th at this stage of the deal of saying, okay, you know, we have our number, as Brad alluded to before, we're going to stick to, you know, we're only going to go up in a couple clicks. So he gets the kind of the hint a little bit more that, you know, we're sticking to this. This is, we're not going far from this. And ultimately, um, you know, we, 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 we settled on our final purchase price, you know, and go many more back in such 295. Mm -hmm. Okay. Love it. And um, at 295 with the taxes not going up for three years, grand slam for us. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we, we were targeting a 10% cash on cash. We're getting 20% cash on cash. We were targeting a seven cap rate. We're getting a nine cap. Awesome. Things, things are going to change, you know, and once the taxes get reassessed in 2023, we're going to get the numbers that we had initially wanted to, but it, it worked out for us. Cool. And this, I'm going to give a little plug here. People talk about what's the best book for real estate, but Chris Voss never split the difference in negotiating because these, the final little, like the last push for negotiating, that was $10,000 an hour work right there. Howard's going up 2,500 bucks, but like we were paying, we were going out of pocket over for what the property was appraising. So that was money physically coming out of our pocket right. where we literally, you know, by, by not coming back at him and showing his sign of weakness at 305, which is what we would have paid. That's $10,000 that I don't, I wouldn't have right now. And we still would have got the deal done. So knowing how to negotiate is just like, it's a critical component to any, to any deal. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, cause yeah. you get pot committed in the deal, right? So like, I think that was the big thing for Brad and I, we had countless conversations saying how much time have we spent on this one deal? And I think until you're in it and you've experienced you know, how long it takes to get one that you like, and then the negotiation and going down the path, you know, it takes time. And like, how much we talk about time is money. And, you know, it's, you know, finally, you know, getting to that, it's hard. It's like, oh, I'm going to burn all this time I spent on this, but you have to be, it's a skill. You have to stick to it and know, and know where you're at. Mm -hmm. So was there I want to add one more thing, yeah. one more little hiccup yep. that, so yeah, we close the deal. Great. Feel good about everything. But two days before closing, we get a call from our, our agent saying that the seller has cold feet and he wants to walk from the deal. Hmm. I remember the broker called me, he goes, are you sitting down? I go, Max, we're supposed to in two days. <laughs> like this shouldn't be a conversation. And he goes, listen, this is the beautiful thing about the state of Ohio. You can't force a buyer to buy, but you can force a seller to sell. And he did not have an out. We would have only had to grant him the out. We were working on this deal for 45 days. We didn't grant him the out. You know, we, we contacted an attorney. We were within our rights to, you know, potentially go down that route and have someone enforce this contract because it's enforceable. But that was the last little... I was like, oh, we thought we've seen everything. And mm. uh, that was it. But we overcame all of those challenges and we had some downs in this deal, but those downs just made the opposite of closing that much better. Love it. Can you talk to how it's gone since closing and also management out of state uh, is a big question for a lot of people. So what does that look like for you guys? And then kind of how did things roll out from day one of owning this thing until now? Yeah, so I don't know if we touched on it yet, but... Uh, our broker uh, became our, our our manager, our property manager. So we established a really good rapport through him throughout the process. He, we felt like it was someone we could really trust and our boots on the ground. And he said, you know, if it's going to help push this deal through the finish line, you know, I'm willing to do um, a below, you know, below market rate um, property management fee, if you will. And so we engaged our property, um, our broker as our property manager. Um, so that was sorted with that end of it. As far as plugging in um, and the system we use, we, we use apartments.com and we got all, which is, which is now, you know, ex cozy. I think cozy is plugged into apartments.com. So mm -hmm. we have all, all of our tenants plugged into to that and we manage the property through that. Um, and uh, you know, it, it, we're trying to set it and forget it, if you will. So we have them set up and then we have our kind of internal systems that we use <clears throat> to kind of keep the property organized. Okay. Got it. Um, any other things specific to this deal that you want to talk about? I have a couple other questions just on kind of like more high level stuff, but anything specific to this deal, maybe challenges that you kind of had to overcome that maybe someone could learn from or advice you'd give yourself kind of going back to it um, before we move off it. I think we basically hit on those things, but it comes down to, you know, know your numbers, 
have an idea of what the property is going to appraise for before you get the appraisal. It's going to be, if it's under four units, it's going to be a price per square foot. Um, and kind of just be prepared for things to come up and take the emotion out of it, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, say, okay, what makes sense? Cause you know, if you do move forward with the property, great. But if it's not going to cash flow, like, yes, there may be some learning to it, but that's why you're buying the property. It's an investment. Yeah. I, I just say, and I joke with Brad, I like, I call it like the Farber and Heller, like audit firm. We, we reapproach this, like, as you know, we have, we were both ex auditors. So every single number that in your underwriting can be corroborated in what, what some shape or form with a third party or, you know, comps in the area. So every single number you should, there, there's a way to get comfortable that you, you have the right number, you know, underwriting the property. So I would just say, do, you know, take the time to corroborate every single number that, that you're using in order to come up with your cash flow ultimately and, and, and take the time to do that. Got it. Love it. Um, I guess just the other thing with the property manager yeah. that I just want to just say quickly, because, you know, it worked in our case because Max lived a few blocks from the property. And again, it's that B class ten. it's B tenancy. So it's not somewhere we're going to have to be banging down doors, but there needs to be an alignment of interest where, you know, it's not going to be a fit for every single person to have their broker manage the property. And a good property manager is not going to add a tremendous amount of value to the property, but a bad property manager is going to suck the life and the cash out of the property. So I just think that's important. It happened to work out for us, but if it was in a different area of town, that's not a few blocks, like maybe we would have a different property manager. So, you know, mm -hmm. just something to consider, look at it, you know, from a, uh, a lens that you're going to, you know, be a little bit, you'll challenge things, mm -hmm. make sure it's right. And, and just confirming this again, you've never been to Dayton, Ohio. You've never seen this property. I, I mean, I have been there, but I've never seen this property and, you know, met Max, you've never met Max physically. So I guess maybe, is there anything you just comment on of doing these things virtually or how feasible is it for someone again, listening to this, living in New York city, they've just kind of been going through COVID. They have some extra cash and they want to get in the game, but they don't think it's possible out of state. Yeah, I mean, it's it's your relationships and the team you build around you and, and, and having a trust in those folks. And that goes back to all the things I think we alluded to before that, you know, it, it, it's so important is relationship building. And then it's also technology. I mean, there's just, there's just so much information out there that, um, and, you know, and there's so much resource out there that, Ultimately, um, the really it really comes to a point where you can get comfortable without having to go there. And um, uh, you know, we're not the only ones who've never seen a property that's been bought before. It, it's something that's done. And uh, ultimately, um, you know, there, there's no reason for you to have to go. It's just another expense, un unfortunately. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, guys, I mean, is there anything else that you want to talk about or call out? I think we've covered a lot of topics here for beginner, especially. Um, you know, it's cool even just being, you know, around this deal, not even knowing all these details, you know, there's always some new stuff and new learning that comes up, but, um, anything else you just want to call out or, uh, maybe, maybe talk to just, just before we tie off. I think we covered a lot. Um, cool. I mean, I think the other thing that Howard, you know, that, that worked for us is just partners, you know, it, it, partners are not easy. There needs to be a trust factor. I think you need to have a value, similar values, you know, and it's been working. It's a yin and yang relationship for us. We, we complement each other very well. Um, and I think that's something that also made this deal easier. You know, we're sounding boards for each other. And again, sometimes when things aren't working out, you need someone who's going to be that rock on the other side who's going to, you know, smack you in the face and say, wake up. <laughs> and, we did that on this deal. So, yeah. I mean, my wife says I talk to, to Brad more than I talk to, to her. So, you know, we're, we're on the phone every day and we're, we're he, Brad's one of my best friends. So, you know, um, you know, you're a little bit worried going into business, uh, you know, with a really good friend, but this has been a really, you know, successful for us. I think we, we have a similar career path. So we kind of were comfortable with each other's skill sets, which really helped this partnership. So um, our approach is very similar to, to, to how we approach, you know, for, for what we did here. Um, so it just, it just really worked for us. I mean, you know, we're both, we were both rookies and we weren't both, we were both unafraid to ask each other any question or any thought that came into our mind. 
And maybe in some partnerships, you wouldn't have that because someone's way more experienced than, than you. I think that going into it first, being both first timers was like really useful for me. And you see this in, you know, small tech companies. They always say, you know, you must, you know, it's, they recommend you having a partner if you go into start a business. So mm-hmm. it, it worked really great for us. Awesome. Well, it's been fun, guys. I think uh, the first episode with, with the two-man team in the books, um, went pretty good. So it's been awesome guys. Appreciate you coming on shedding some light about getting your first deal done out of state. I think it's going to help a lot of people. What's the best way for people to either uh, connect or get in touch, either just reach out directly or on social media or however you guys would like. Facebook, Instagram, you know, we're, we're, we're not at the, we don't have a website. What are your names on the platforms? Uh, Brad S Farber, find me in the, uh, in the Facebook group as well. And again, I think at the end of the day, part of the reason why we came on is we genuinely want to help people. And I know that I, I didn't have a coach, you know, I kind of just had to get locked in and, and uh, you know, find it within myself to do it. But I will say that every time that John talked about people not taking action, when I was listening to other episodes, I thought about myself as chicken little in the corner over there. And that was enough to push me. So yeah, genuinely just trying, you know, just get our, get our story out there hopefully expand the portfolio and help as many people as we can along the way. Yep. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. It's um, you know, we can connect on LinkedIn. It's Howard Heller and um, you know, Instagram Howard underscore Franklin. Um, feel free to connect with me. Happy to talk. Um, just wanted to thank John for having, having us on and um, you know, we love your content and here, here's case in, proof of uh two guys who who started consuming your content and other real estate content and, and took some action and, and here we are now so love it well thank you guys again best of luck in 2021 and uh it's gonna be the first of many it's gonna be fun to watch guys thanks again hey you millennial millionaire are you looking for help getting to the next level in real estate are you looking for accountability and strategy to achieve your goals if so Jonathan is now taking on one-on-one students and opening a few spots in his private mastermind. It's affordable and welcome to everyone. If you had any questions or think you may need a boost, send Jonathan a message on Facebook or email at johnjfarber at outlook.com. 